everyone welcome to talking research i am asmita and this is a podcast that features in-depth interviews with prominent academics and researchers who study sexual violence across its different manifestations This conversation features an in-depth discussion of sexual violence, both in specific cases and more generally. If this is something that you find disturbing, please feel free to stop listening at any point. In this conversation, I'm joined by Dr. Stephanie Bonds, who is an assistant professor of criminal justice at the University of New Haven. Her research focuses on gender and racial inequality at the intersections of organizations identity and victimization and today she shares her work on sexual harassment and how that affects us service women in the military she talks about how there is a climate of bureaucratic harassment in the military what that means and how it manifests stephanie explains really well in this episode It's worth noting that while women and people of color have served in the military for decades if not centuries in the last however many wars the US have fought a climate where they're segregated remains and she explains how that interacts with the sexual harassment faced by the women she interviewed If you have any feedback on this episode or the podcast in general please feel free to get in touch our social media and email contact details are all in the podcast description there is also links to organizations that support survivors of sexual violence in various countries so if you need please feel free to use those and i'm really thrilled to share that we're starting a new initiative at talking research which is the talking research over books book club and that means that we'll meet every one month or so and talk about books that focus on research around sexual and gendered violence if you're interested in that please also check out the podcast description there's a link to a google doc and if you feel that you'll be able to hear more information about how that initiative progresses also please subscribe to the podcast to receive regular updates on whichever podcasting platform you use that's everything from me that's all the housekeeping done so we can go and listen to the episode and stephanie's fascinating research so let's dive in hi stephanie thank you so much for joining me today how are you doing i'm doing well how are you thank you for having me Oh, uh, I'm good too. I'm, um, you know, just grateful that we can safely record this episode, and um, yeah, really excited to talk to you. So, to start, tell us about yourself. How would you introduce yourself in a way that you'd like to be introduced? My name is Stephanie Bonas. I am an assistant professor at the University of New Haven. Mm-hmm. Professionally, I research and teach about uh, things related to gender and racial inequality uh, as they intersect with crime, victimization, identity, and organizations. And so, one of my main focuses of my research is uh, military sexual violence and sexual harassment. But I look at sexual violence as um, it really reveals a lot about the way our society is structured and the way organizations are structured. So I take the view that those who are at risk of sexual violence 
reveals a lot about how our society is organized and what our society values. So that's sort of my professional um, and research interests. I also, um, I have a two-year-old daughter. I live with my partner and my daughter in Connecticut. Mm. Um, and mm. I really enjoy traveling, although of course right now I'm not doing any of that. Yeah. Wow. That that was amazing. Um, I mean, I'm always grateful when, you know, people who have kids make time to sort of have these conversations. So thank you again. You know, how did you get into researching sexual violence and, you know, specifically military sexual harassment? Um, <clears throat> so I pursued a master's degree at, in South Africa at the institution currently known as Rhodes University. Mm. And I was actually a political science major, um, going to get a master's in political science. And I was really interested in issues of identity. And I was, I was interested in how um, the new generation of um, South Africans who were born after apartheid thought of themselves as South Africans. That's sort of what I wanted to study. And then I was at a bar and a woman was raped at the bar while I was there. And mm. the police, um, you know, there's a police investigation, but the bar didn't close down. Um, and then the next week, there were uh, an, there was an article in the local newspaper about about this rape that occurred, and then I started flipping through the newspaper, and there were other instances of rape that were covered in the newspaper as well. And the the um, the rape at the bar was front page news. They actually named and pictured the perpetrator um, before his court date and everything. They called the woman a brave survivor. Um, and it was, you know, a full two and a half pages of coverage. And then there was this news in brief section. And it was all about this six-year-old girl who had been raped. Um, there, It was a couple of sentences long. She was never called a victim at all. And it was a very crude description of what happened to her, uh, what this man had done to her. Um, and I just started to ask questions about, well, what's going on here? And, um, you know, the victim who was raped at the bar was white. And the young girl who was raped was black. And I started to ask questions about what is happening with uh, the way these victimizations are being portrayed and what's mm -hmm. happening with these sort of race-based um, coverages of these in instances. So I completely changed my master's thesis topic after seeing that newspaper, those two newspaper ads next to each other. And I did a big discourse analysis on the way that media and newspapers discuss um, local instances of rape. And wow. so that's sort of where, yeah. I became interested in sexual violence. <clears throat> wow. Um, so, you know, just for our listeners, what does discourse analysis mean? Discourse analysis is when you look at what meanings are produced uh, and what what's actually being said behind a series of words. And so in that particular, in that paper, I looked at what does it mean when you call one person who is a victim of sexual assault a victim and you don't say that to um, any black victims of sexual assault. That's producing a particular meaning about what we think of about victimization, even though uh, the newspaper is not coming out and saying we don't value black victims as much as white victims. They are um, producing those meanings in the words they choose to use um, and the words that they choose to withhold when describing um, victims. Mm. Mm. That, that was an amazing description. Thank you. So, you know, you've done this study investigating harassment in the U.S. military and it's been 
if I'm not wrong, a qualitative study. Mm-hmm. So tell us more about that, you know, just generally what was that study and uh, what did you find? I this, this study was developed out of a couple of different interests. I already had the interest in sexual violence. Um, and my best friend joined the Marine Corps when we were in our early 20s. And watching her experience and the things that she went through was interesting and difficult for me. I felt like she was um, in a very male-dominated environment. I felt that it was really hard on her mentally. And watching her just identity change throughout that process was something that was personally interesting to me. Knowing that um, as a qualitative researcher, one of the hardest things to do is to get access to a lot of participants. Knowing that I already had this interest in sexual violence, knowing that the military was space where there was a lot of sexual violence, and having a friend going through the military itself, I knew that this could be a potential great site for research. And so I then began to recruit people who were in the military to, one, understand this phenomenon better, but also to understand my friend a little bit better. And so that's where the interest initially came. So I recruited um, 45, now I have 45 women I've spoken with who've served in the U.S. military over the last four or five years. And that study, I really wanted to center victims or women's voices and what they thought was important. So even if I thought like maybe they're all sexually harassed, um, maybe that's not how I should start out the study. So I actually asked really broad questions uh, because I wanted women to center their voices and to hear what they thought was important about their experiences. And so I asked questions like, what are your three most prominent experiences from the military that you can remember? Um, Tell me about a great day at work. Tell me about a frustrating day at work. And what I found was that in all but two interviews, harassment came up in, in those sort of first five questions that I asked. And so harassment was something that permeated um, these women's experiences, even though I wasn't inserting that into the narrative. And so that became a really important finding for me to then confirm that, yes, this is a problem that women experience. One of the key findings um, of that, of the study, is that the, the ways in which bureaucracy is infused in harassment stories. A lot of the people I spoke with, they were annoyed about harassment. They were sexually harassed often. But one of the things that they focused on, because I think it was particularly, one, troubling, and two, difficult to navigate around their careers, was the way that there was an official paper trail sort of following their their harassment experiences. In other words, their harassers could document and you know make them look like really bad soldiers or really bad Marines. Um, but the basis for that documentation was that this person was actually harassing them or trying to punish them for not going on a date with them or trying to punish them for trying to report a rape or sexual violence. And so they spent a really long time trying to remove these um, negative administrative files that were, or reports that were filed against them. And so that was one of the main findings that people are actually actively harassed through the bureaucracy itself. Hmm. So Marine Corps just, you know, I'm not very familiar with the structures within the U.S. military. That's, I'm assuming, a seg- section of the military, or is that a broader term for the military itself in the U.S.? There are um, four branches. There are others, but there are four main branches of the military, and I interviewed people in all four branches. So we have the Army, the Marine Corps, the Navy, and the Air Force. 
and they're, they all have different functions and different missions. Um, and they all have different trainings. You know, they're all centrally located under the Department of Defense, um, but they all are distinct entities and they have their own processes. Right. Makes sense. And the thing that stood out to me when reading the study and also, you know, listening to you talk right now, explaining the study is that, you know, you're looking at sexual harassment that these women faced while at work, but also, you know, the harassment that they went through, as you said, you know, after they'd been sexually harassed, you know, just the broader systemic harassment relating to that. So not just the incident of the, you know, sexual harassment, but also what happens after that and how that is harassment in itself, Mm -hmm. uh, which I think, you know, is fascinating. And I also think something that comes up a lot when we hear women talk about how they're treated after their, you know, after they undergo any sort of uh, reporting about any you know instance of sexual violence how often the process of reporting it or the process of a trial can be additional victimization mm-hmm. so yeah so you know is that what you call bureaucratic harassment what is bureaucratic i can't say that word <laughs> bureaucratic bureaucratic yeah you got it bureaucratic i can't spell it which is so horrible i write bureaucratic all the time and i cannot for the life of me spell this word (laughs) but um i mean i feel like when i emailed you i was talking about i just looked and i realized that i misspelled this word so i can't spell it or say it but that's fine i mean i think i think we know what we're talking about so yeah but what is bureaucratic harassment bureaucratic harassment i define it as this act of active and purposeful manipulation of administrative policies and procedures. And so individuals who have institutional power over others, particularly in the military, where there are just so many rules, there are rules on if you're not on a military base, if you're not in military uniform, there are still rules on how you can wear your civilian clothing. Like if you are wearing pants with a belt, with belt loops, you need to wear a belt. So there are so many rules that can be cited that you can get in trouble for. And so if you have institutional power based on your rank, and if you have power based on your social identity, you know, if you're like, if you're a white male, and you have all this social power, um, as well as institutional power, the way if you have this sort of um, large you have this large bureaucracy at your disposal that can become weaponized against women. And so while the rules are, there are a lot of rules for various reasons, the ways in in which they're wielded because commanders have a lot of discretion, because the military adheres to a strict hierarchy, they're able to actively manipulate rules um, in, in what I find are really sexist and racist ways. And so it's the active manipulation of administrative policies to cause harm. And it's, both the tool of the harasser, the bureaucracy is the tool of the harasser, but their power is also embedded in the bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. It also serves as this type of protection, right? So there's, they say, oh, I just was implementing the rules or I just made a, you know, so they can sort of hide behind the fact that the rules apply to everybody the same, but they actually don't. What, what, why, why is this, why does this continue? You know, what are factors that perpetuate bureaucratic harassment in the U.S. military? Why is this not, you know, checked? I think it's a couple of different things going on. One is that discretion is an absolutely protected part of being a commander in the military. Uh, Often 
combat effectiveness is cited as the reason that discretion is required and a necessary part of the job. And so if in other jobs, a lot of times discrimination suits, particularly in the United States, will hinge on this idea that, well, look, you sort of, you fired all the pregnant women, or you've not hired a woman or promoted a woman in like six years. Um, and look at the, we can compare those uh, differences and those discretionary differences. In the military, that discretion is sort of protected. And so those differences aren't necessarily looked at as problematic. Um, the other thing is that there's just an adherence to this hierarchy. There are really strict rules about uh, who you can talk to and who you can report things to and who you should listen to. And military commanders have a great deal of power uh, in the United States to get a protection order against an, an abuser. You usually have to um, seek legal help from the court system. But in the military, it's just a commander calls and says, you can't go near your spouse anymore. And that's a military protection order is issued through a commander. So the, the level of power they have, you know, their rule is, you know, in that sense, legally binding. Um, and so I just think that the, the hierarchy, the discretion, these are all features of the military that allow for bureaucratic harassment to flourish, but it's really that it's mapped onto a gendered organization, right? And so the values of, that's what shapes the way that the bureaucratic harassment is wielded. I think that the bureau, I think that committers could wield the bureaucracy in, in any way that they wanted, right? To make any situation that they wanted to go a certain way. However, the fact that the military values hyper-masculinity, it values warrior masculinity, it denigrates femininity, we see really unequal outcomes in how this bureaucracy is wielded. Hmm. Wow, that makes sense. I mean, the point you made about discretion and just that structural element in the in the military. And related to that, you know, you've said that there's a sort of this racism and sexism mm -hmm. that is part of the structure of the military so it's institutionalized and that's part of the reason why these these you know crimes or this harassment persists mm -hmm. so you know about that how have racism and sexism become in, embedded in the institution of the military and i mean i was also curious about when women were allowed to enter uh the military and even i think black people when was that do you know so it's interesting because um we know that throughout the united states history that black people and women um have served in the military throughout our history and then it starts to become sort of regulated for example i think in the, women were barred from the air force academy i think until 1979 right. But the, it's, it's sort of interesting how even once these rules start to change, once we see that, um, that there's integrated units, right? That's sort of one of the, that was one of the biggest issues with, with race in, in the military is that there were um, Black people serving in World War II, but they were segregated units, segregated from white people. Um, mm -hmm. But what we see is the way that the institution tries to hold on to um, those power structures, even as they change. And that's sort of, I think that's sort of where we see that the military is still holding on to those power structures. So for example, when, once the Air Force um, allows women to enter, Academy allows women to enter, the, the last, the last all-male class refers to themselves as the last class with balls. Um, and so we see how that 
becomes a way in which to sort of hold on to the fact that this was this is when the Air Force was at its peak, right? Because we were the last class of balls. And we see how that's sort of a way to still ostracize women, right? And so one of the things that, even though women have historically been serving in the military for, you know, hundreds of years, we see that they, the rules and regulations start to really regulate that um, in the 1900s. And then even through, it wasn't, women were barred from all combat units in our country um, until very recently. So a lawsuit filed in 2012, the ACLU filed a lawsuit on behalf of four service women that pushed for the Secretary of Defense at the time to revoke that ban on women in combat. And so that was, that occurred in, the lawsuit was in 2012, it was revoked in 2013, and we're still seeing, you know, people aren't fully integrated yet, particularly the Marine Corps hasn't fully integrated training. Hmm. It gets back to how are these things gendered and raced? Well, they, they started out that way, right? And so the institution starts out by protecting um, and by elevating white men. And then the institution still plays an active role in, in doing that in, in, in many ways. And, and I think the, you know, the don't ask, don't tell era was a very similar promotion of, of homophobia within the military. What, what was Don't Ask, Don't Tell? Sorry for my ignorance. Oh, no worries. Um, so Don't Ask, Don't Tell meant that um, gay people could not openly serve in the military. So you could be gay and be in the military, but you could not talk about your sexuality and you could not be out. And so the rule was that Don't Ask, Don't Tell was that you wouldn't, people wouldn't ask about your sexuality and you wouldn't tell about your sexuality. And it could be grounds for getting you kicked out and um, a lot of people were kicked out. Uh, there's a statistic that um, a lot of women actually were kicked out of the military um, because under Don't Ask, Don't Tell, because it was used to police sexuality. <laughs> and so even though women were very, you know, women make up, you know, less than 10% of the Marine Corps, about 20% of the Air Force, but they were getting discharged at really high rates, um, almost like 48% or 50% in, in some years um, for Don't Ask, Don't Tell violations. You could actually be kicked out of the military for your sexuality. Mm -hmm. Um, before the repeal. Hmm. So, you know, in this study where you spoke to all these service women and, you know, they shared their experiences in that institution and subsequently also their experiences with harassment, how were they affected by the harassment and the reporting after that? Women were, um, there were various levels of how women were affected by the harassment. Um, a lot of women just left the military altogether. I think a lot of women who would have stayed career military, which which means you put in 20 years, um, they, they were unwilling to do that in such an environment. Even women who said that they had an overall good experience, they a lot of them cited the harassment and the masculine culture as a reason they wouldn't stay. Um, a lot of women self-medicated with alcohol, not not usually drugs because you can get kicked out of the military for any drug use. A lot of coping with alcohol, um, unhealthy relationships with alcohol. And um, a lot of people had a really hard time reporting their harassment. And I think that that sort of deteriorated their, uh, one, their mental health, but also their it eroded their trust in the institution. And so, um, one woman in particular tried to report her an attempted sexual assault um, and she was not getting the help she needed. And so she said, listen, this is so bad that I want to kill myself. And then that triggers an automatic institutionalization for mental health. Um, and so she was locked up and evaluated for um, in a mental institution. 
And then that incident was used to question the validity of her claim later. So they said like, oh, well, it's his word against yours and you're crazy. So then we, we don't believe this happened to you. And um, then the head was sent to medical and to medical records. And it was um, put in her file that she had a personality disorder, which can be grounds for a discharge and a medical discharge. And then it's, it's used to, it was, it can be used to take away all of your post-service benefits uh, because it's considered a pre-existing condition. And so um, the veteran affairs committee actually um, has accused the military of improper diagnoses of personality disorders, essentially claiming that they're trying to save money for in veteran benefits by assigning mm-hmm. this code to people. So she's not the only one this happened to, but um, it was particularly problematic for her. And that's why I think the bureaucratic piece is so key is that she had a, a terrible attempted sexual assault. She had a terrible experience trying to report it. She was clearly exhibiting signs of trauma. And then the bureaucracy is used against her to effectively end her military career and to take away her post-service benefits, right? And so um, they had a really they had a really tough time. Uh, a lot of people had trouble reporting their sexual assault. Listening to you talk and what I'm gauging is that these structures within the military exist and you know they sort of you know they function through these donors don't tell and all of these different instances you've given and what they do is they have a significant negative impact on the women who are working in the military and you know it it has a very real tangible negative impact that sort of also dissuades them from doing their jobs Yeah, and you know, this reminds me that there's this movie that's come out about uh, the Indian Air Force and the first female pilot in the Indian Air Force. And that movie's received a lot of criticism because it shows the sexism that she faced and the Air Force have tried to, you know, get it uh, to not release in the way that it was made. Wow. Because they think that it portrays the Air Force in... Uh, in the bad negative light and you know people have sort of I, I mean there's there's a culture of huge respect for the military in India and the armed forces and I imagine it's similar in the US as well where you know if you question these things if you question institutional issues within the military people don't always take to it very well right yeah yeah I think that I mean I can see that I think that when you're questioning this huge institution it they become really defensive right and i think that's one of the reasons why it's important to keep talking about these issues because and and i will say that the military list has to listen they're forced to listen uh when they're embarrassed they're forced to listen when they um when they're being called out for these sorts of things but of course they're going to try and silence those voices and we see how they've done that over and over again and the ways in which you know the women talked about even within a very small unit trying to be silenced right from their experiences and that extends up to you know when you write articles about it when the the military doesn't want them that out there Mm, that they continue to have a problem with sexual harassment And, and particularly in the united states military they've created an office called the sexual assault sexual assault it's called sapper um prevention and response in 2005 and so they they are 
looking at this, they're trying to address this issue, right? But they're doing it alongside of propping up all these other problematic values and culture and interactions. And so they think that they're addressing it. And so they don't want to hear that they're still failing. I mean, I think there was a survey that came out that the Department of Defense conducted on on all four branches of the U.S. military that found that instances were on the rise. Um, and that's not what they want to find. Not reports, but instant, estimated instances of harassment were on the rise. Um, and so that's sort of difficult. Yeah, yeah. Instances, I mean, obviously reports are not going to rise if you discourage people from reporting. So, you know, the estimates will reflect uh, a, a more accurate picture. Exactly. But it's funny because they had been kind of really proud of themselves in the in the couple years before because they were they were like, look, reports are rising. That means we're creating a better climate for reporting. And then the new data came out two years later where it was like, oh, reports are the same. And now instances are estimated to be rising. So that was sort of a difficult spot for them to be in. Mm, I can imagine. And I you know also think that these affects the negative impacts of this institutional environment. It's probably compounded for you know, women of color and disabled women and, you know, older women and really just the intersectionality of that harassment. Yeah. Yeah. I will say that for, I mean, for women of color in my sample, particularly black and Latino women, they talked about how the harassment was pretty much persistent across units. Um, So white women would sometimes say like, oh, well, that was a good unit where I, I wasn't having a lot of harassment. Others would say, oh, this unit was really bad. Uh, but for um, Black and Latino women, they talked about persistent harassment across the military career. And one thing that I noticed about their experiences is that men often discussed ownership of their bodies. When they would be new to a unit, men would say, oh, she's mine. You you know, she's mine. I called dibs. I have her. And uh, that was pretty consistent across the Latina and Black women's narratives. And it was not present in the white women's narratives. And did you speak to any indigenous women as well in the military? One. So it's, you know, it's not representative. But um, yes, she also had some really, people did not discuss ownership over her body uh, in that same way. But she had pretty persistent discrimination and harassment, um, but not from men in her unit. And I think it's because she was in like a, she had a combat related deployment. And so mm-hmm. she actually had a pretty good experience with some of the men in her unit. But whenever she ate at on the base, like at the base cafeteria, she was harassed by men in other units, like pretty bad stuff. So, you know, what recommendations do you have for addressing bureaucratic harassment? And I know that, you know, that question is a bit even, I don't know, idealistic or impractical. But really, I mean, we have to think about how we can start addressing these things. So do you have any recommendations for that? Uh, yes, I think for bureaucratic harassment, it needs to be named. I think that the fact that this was so present in all the women's narratives, uh, most of the women's narratives, and I didn't ask about it, I didn't even know it existed. So the fact that the bureaucracy is being used in this way needs to be highlighted. It's a very small thing, but like even, I'm not saying this would fix everything, right? But even if you're able to, um, the military could review right? The number of people who don't get promotion by gender, by race, um, in a particular mm-hmm. command. Uh, a lot of people I talk to always say that c- the command climate is very key to how they're treated in a unit. And the quantitative research supports that. It's, it argues that sexual assault is three times more likely in units that tolerate sexual harassment 
So if we know there's a link between command climate and setting the tone and the way people are treated, then we also need to look at the way their policies, the policies are a part of command climate, how a commander wields those policies and uses those policies. And so just being aware of that. Another thing that should change is that there should not be such a strict hierarchy or chain of command when reporting things like harassment. So for sexual assault, there are different reporting streams. You don't have to go to um, there. You don't have to go to your commander. But for other issues, um, in order to talk to your boss's boss, you have to go through an official military process, which is called requesting mass. And that's really intimidating one for someone who adheres to a strict hierarchy. They don't necessarily feel comfortable going over some their boss's head. Number two, they're often prevented from doing so. And so in, in my, in one of my interviewees, she said that she tried to do this process, but the, one of the guys working the front desk, who was like the administrative assistant of her boss's boss called down to her boss and was like, Hey, you have this devil dog trying to go around you. Um, and so she was prevented from accessing that policy. So I think, you know, more focus on how these policies are used, looking at whether or not they're used in a discriminatory way. That's number one. Number two, creating more streams for reporting or access to policies for victims. And then three, allowing, one of the biggest things is that with sexual assault, victims are allowed to request to leave a base. Um, they can ex request an expedited transfer. And so I think that that should also be an option for victims of sexual harassment. Um, mm. And so those are some just sort of the practical on the ground things that don't have to deal with, you know, dismantling the entire structure of the military, which I think ultimately that's one of the main facilitators of sexual harassment. So. Yeah, yeah. But thanks for breaking that down. You know, that's really actionable points. But I agree with you. I think uh, <laughs> you have to. Um, break down those structures that yeah. are flawed but that's a personal opinion that's not my you know I'm not talking right, to right, right. you know that's you know I'm not saying that that's research that I'm doing but just you know putting it out there yeah. <laughs> um, so what does future research look like for you are you planning on going down a similar route or do you have something else in mind I'm working on a book right now on all of these topics that we've been discussing. I'm I, One of the things that I didn't really get to talk about is the way that I think that the military claims that it's this sort of family and it's this sort of protector. And I think that's really attractive to people. I think people join because they want stability. Um, of course, the military provides financial and job stability and security, but also it promises that it's going to take care of the people who, who work there. And what are the gendered meanings around that, right? And so how does that make, one, women who are girls, essentially girls, you're young, very young people joining the military, trying to escape negative family situations, trying to escape an abusive partner, um, they're, they're drawn to the military because of the family narrative. Um, and then I, I look at how then the military replicates the same abuses that they're escaping from um, by not protecting them from sexual violence. I'm also doing a new project where I interview military lawyers, uh, prosecutors, and defense attorneys. I've observed two courts martial, so military trials of sexual assault. Um, mm. And that's a project looking at the military justice system and, and what it's doing to address these issues. And, and that's an interesting project because I feel like, you know, sometimes once the people get to the, to the law office that 
they're having a little bit better experiences, but the hurdles for them to get there are, are great. Um, mm -hmm. And then I'm, I'm doing a completely unrelated project with a, a colleague I met in graduate school. We're looking at um, the specific ways that women, pregnant women are navigating pregnancy, childbirth and motherhood um, during COVID-19. Wow. Wow. That, that's amazing and very relevant. But, you know, also the book sounds amazing. I really want to read it as soon Thank as you. it comes out. And, you know, just listening to you talk about it makes me think that I, I guess because the, within armed forces, it's the narrative is usually, regardless of which country it is, the narrative is that they're fighting an enemy, an external enemy or a threat. You know, just I wonder how that plays with this dismissal of internal threats and, you know, in, internal faults. That's a great point. And one of the themes of my book is that, like, women actually move women move throughout their military careers or women move throughout the military as, you know, first outsiders, um, outsiders to enemies. And I think that a lot of them are treated like enemies. Um, and I think that that's why we see so much harassment that women are seen as, they're seen as that enemy, the enemy inside. Mm -hmm. And um, men weaponize against them. They weaponize bureaucracy. They weaponize sexual violence. And they they, they do all of these things to sort of, cement that enemy status yeah that's amazing and you know really really important work but just listening to you talk makes me think that you're doing all of these interviews and you're talking to all of these women who've been dealing with some pretty difficult circumstances and you've mentioned you know your personal experiences with witnessing sexual violence and how that sort of informed your decision making about your research is any of this emotionally draining and you know how do you balance your work with your mental and emotional health i love this question um because i think mental health is really important uh i'm not doing a great job of it right now uh so it's it's interesting you ask me i can give you two answers the one answer when i'm doing a good job is that um i create a real separation i try not to read or listen to or conduct interviews or even read, you know, research um, in spaces I associate with relaxation. So I used to do a lot of reading in bed, and then I was having a lot of nightmares. And I was like, Oh, that's probably not smart. Um, mm. If I am stuck on a, partic a particularly difficult interview, um, I try to like compartmentalize and like say goodbye to that person. And then like, I shut the office door and I say goodbye to that person, like just physically saying goodbye. So those are some sort of little strategies I use. I also don't work when I go on vacation. Uh, I haven't been on a vacation uh, in a really long time because of COVID. But um, my partner and I travel, we used to travel often. Um, and I do not work. I don't respond to emails. I don't do anything. And so that sort of separation um, is key for me. I think what's hard now is that I'm not doing any of those things, like in terms of I'm not going on vacation. And like my teaching load at my university has just increased. And so I teach about these issues. I teach race, gender, class, crime, and I teach domestic violence. Um, and so there's really no separation right now. And I am struggling right now more than at other times. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for being honest about that as well. You know, it's, uh, I think it's really valuable when, you know, you're listening to someone who's doing such important work and they talk about how it's affecting them but mm -hmm. i'm sending you lots of positive <laughs> energy from across the screen and yeah, yeah I, I feel like 
guests talk about on the podcast talk about this all the time and you know these issues of mental health you know which come with this research and yeah. I, i hope you know i hope you know you're not alone is what i'm trying to convey yeah that is helpful and i think like twitter is very helpful to see that <laughs> a lot of people are very vocal on twitter about how they're struggling and it's hard to focus right now um so helpful yeah yeah for sure um but i hope you feel better but i think last question i want to ask you is what is one practical thing that you would like to say to everyone listening about how they can sort of make positive change about ending sexual violence you know what they can do to prevent sexual violence or you know support survivors better on their end regardless of you know if they're involved with this work but yeah. really just anyone what's one practical thing that we can all do honestly i think the one thing we can all do is listen i think that that is so key i think so many victims we we were talking about secondary trauma earlier and how even going through the legal process can be traumatizing just having someone listen and listen well and give space uh for the narrative no matter how that person wants to tell that story to you If they've come to you, they feel comfortable. It's really hard to talk to somebody about your sexual victimization. If someone has come to you with that, they've made a really hard decision already. And your job is to be supportive and to listen, to resist the urge to control the narrative, to resist the urge to tell them how to think about it, you know, like, oh, don't offer, you know, positive spins, don't turn them down an even more negative thought process. Just listen, be supportive. don't try to fix the problem unless they're asking for help with tangible aid and that's number 1 and i think that's where this project started for me is i want to listen to women i want to listen mm-hmm. to victims um and i want to listen to what happened to them um and and then try to tell their story in a thematic way i think that that's number 1 number 2 is 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 think about how all of our structures take away from the individual and think about how these forms of violence are embedded in so many of our institutions in our interactions and in our culture think beyond the individual and how it's actually facilitated at all these levels and that can help you understand why a victim's really struggling um like in the military the US military has the money power and resources to address sexual harassment after 30 years of promising to do so it still has not right so it's putting those resources into other avenues and we need to just stop and think about that cuz that can help you understand why a victim is so frustrated um at every angle um and then that can include at the person who assaulted them but also at all of the other failures along the way hmm yeah and if i can add to that you know when you're listening don't judge mm-hmm. um yeah if someone shares their story don't judge them no judging um, no victim blaming yeah yeah but re- i think that's that's amazing advice and you've explained really well how structures and the individual interact um and i think generally also throughout this conversation you've done an amazing job sort of linking the personal with the research and you know just um it's been it's been amazing listening to you thank you so much for talking to me stephanie thank you and thank you for your you know amazing work uh, we're all really lucky that we've got you looking at these things so looking forward to reading your book thank you so much thank you